Well, we have, uh, over the course of this summer, uh, we have gone through our statement of faith, if you will. We've looked at the scriptures, we've looked at particular doctrines, and, and, uh, and we've worked through them uh, from a scripture standpoint. We've worked through them uh, looking at how our statement of faith summarizes key doctrines in the Bible. And over the last four weeks, uh, we have really began to flesh out a little more of how we're to operate or how we're to think in light of uh, the, um, the theological foundation that we've laid this summer. And, and so this morning really concludes for us a series that, that started at the beginning of, of the summer. And, and uh, last week, I told you, as we looked at um, and kind of marked out just a biblical view or biblical theology, if you will, of missions, we worked through the Great Commission and, and tried to pay um, close attention to the authority of Christ. Uh, this week, uh, we are looking at uh, building the church through biblical optimism, and, and which is, as I said last week, another way for me to be able to spend kind of two weeks on missions, if you will. Uh, but I think the church... Uh, is largely ineffective because the church has adopted a pessimistic view of her place in society and her place in the world, and the church has not reflected enough uh, on uh, our Savior who's seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, who reigns, as we just sang together, who reigns forever, whose kingdom knows no end. And it's upon reflecting and really internalizing that truth, that reality that shapes everything for us. It shapes the way that we worship together. It shapes the way that we're ambassadors for Christ out in society. It shapes uh, uh, the, uh, the energies that we put toward even uh, confessing our own sins before the Lord, repenting of our sin, and trusting in Christ Jesus. And so uh, this is not insignificant. This is a very significant thing for us to pay attention to to internalize, and to live in light of. And so this morning, uh, just as we've done uh, many times over the course of this summer, we are going to do a sort of biblical survey, and my prayer is is that we, together, after having spent time in God's Word, will walk away with a, an optimistic view of God's Word, an optimistic view of His plan in the nations, an optimistic view of His plan for us in the nations. And so uh, we... Uh, as believers, we have absolutely every reason, uh, no matter the cultural circumstances, we have every reason to be optimistic. And so that's what um, we're uh, going to press in on this morning. And so with that said, why don't we pray and then we will jump in. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the Bible, which is really an optimistic book. And uh, not, not wishful thinking in its optimism, but uh, grounded and fixed in Christ Jesus, Lord. We thank you for that, and God, help us to be people whose thinking is shaped by God's Word. And so, Lord, we are glad to be able to be here with one another, and we are thankful uh, for how you've allowed that to happen by saving us, Lord, and, uh, and by p- putting us in, in this community uh, together, this community called the Body the bride of Christ. And so uh, grant us humility uh, by your spirit, Lord, to see your word and to internalize your word and to be conformed more in the image of Christ as a result of having spent time in your word together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, uh, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, something that should be very obvious to us as, as believers, but is oftentimes glossed over, and it's this. In the beginning is significant. In the beginning is significant, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's been rightly said that if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong, right? Our starting place is God, right? Our starting place as Christians is God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This triune God spoke the world into existence. This triune God determined in himself how this world sh- should function. This triune God in and of himself breathed life into dust, into us, right? Making us male and female, creating us in his own image, and charged us to cultivate this place called earth in his name and for his glory, right? In the beginning, God. It matters. It's significant, right? Our God was in the beginning. He's not created. He's eternal. He's not dependent upon anyone or anything for his existence. He wasn't needy or lonely before he created this world. He's the great I am who I am, right? We looked at that when we spent time in Exodus earlier this year. But our triune God is self-sufficient, right? He's eternal, he's sovereign, and he's good, right? He's good. He's the creator of everything, both of what we see and what we What we don't see in our triune God who's created everything is the rightful and permanent owner over everything. By necessity, right? The the creator of the world is the owner of the world. He didn't hand over the keys to to his world. And we need to be reminded of that. We we need to remember that because our own sin nature oftentimes in, in our society or the way that we are viewing our society betrays us on this very point. Right? We often lose sight of that as Christians, and certainly we live in a society that doesn't acknowledge God in his ordering of things, but the fact remains that our God, the Creator, is there, and he rightfully and righteously rules and governs his creation. And, and the acknowledgement of that, or, or lack thereof, doesn't increase or diminish this eternal truth. Right? It, it, it's our unrighteousness, perhaps according to Romans 1, that, that suppresses this truth, but it's nonetheless true. Right? No matter how rebellious we are, no matter how wicked as creatures may become in their unrighteousness, this can't get any truer. All right? God governing the world, God creating the world and setting its boundaries and determining how it functions won't get any truer. It's true. I've said this already, but I mean, let's, or, or perhaps are, are even just thinking about this in this moment, 
we can kind of connect the dots and see the danger in us forgetting this. But what's the dangers, what are some of the dangers in Christians particularly who, who forget, who forget or, or, or become numb to Genesis 1-1? One of the dangers is that we begin to function as kind of a secularized, ineffective Christian. It's the way that we begin to live in society. And the danger is that we begin to live as people with no hope, constantly in despair, super pessimistic about what's going on around us. And the danger is, is that we begin to believe that what we see is all that matters. And the danger is that we begin to operate as if we're not going to give an account or as if those around us are not going to give an accounting to the Creator. Forgetting or becoming desensitized or secularized on how we think about Genesis 1 matters. In fact, I'd encourage you as just a Lord's Day exercise to read Genesis chapter 1 and then flip over to read Romans chapter 1 to see Paul talk about people who have forgotten Genesis chapter 1 and what that looks like, the natural progression of that and, and how it's by no means flourishing, it's by no means freedom, it's a barren wasteland and enslaved brings slavery. But think about this even as it relates to, to us as Christians being ambassadors of Christ. When we forget all that in the beginning God means, when we forget that, right, we, we may even grow timid in, in, in this sort of shaming society that we live in, to call what's sinful sin, what's righteous right. We may in our shaming society grow timid in, what's call, in, in calling what's beautiful beauty. But a proper reflection on Genesis chapter 1, right? Our, our in humility by the Holy Spirit of God living in us, our submission wholeheartedly to the Creator helps embolden us in society. It helps to spurn us on to know that we live in God's world. Right? I was speaking with one of our elders this past week about the, the Babylon that we live in. And that may be the case for the rest of our lives. Right? That might be the case for, for, for our lives, for us living it, that are living now, that are in this room. That may be the case. But, but here's what's critical for us to understand about that. In the Old Testament, God was sovereign and the ultimate king of Babylon. Right? He was sovereign, is sovereign, and he was the ultimate king of Babylon, just as he's king now. Right? The, the wickedness that's rampant in our culture and, and, and society and, and the disengagement and despair of the church is no reason to retreat Right, duck and cover, or fret. Right, with, with the Spirit of God living in us, the same Spirit that hovered over the waters in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Right. With that Holy Spirit living in us, we need to preach to ourselves on a regular basis, this is my Father's world. Right? This is my Father's world. World, And as we preach that to ourselves, as, as we remember that each and every Lord's Day that we come to gather and, and strengthen ourselves, we're to face sin, especially our own sin, right, with this sort of gospel bravery and repent of it. 
And we're to face our society in the same way, with the compassion of Christ, with gospel bravery, and to call them to acknowledge their Creator through repentance and faith in Jesus, just as we, as the church, do week in and week out. Right? In the beginning matters. This, this world belonging to our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit matters, and it has a ripple effect on how we live our lives. This isn't just some out-of-reach theological statement, right? This is very practical for us. So we need to internalize the fixed, unchanging reality. Again, in our acknowledgement of this doesn't make it any truer that this world belongs to the one who created it. And according to the Bible, our triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, created this world. So in the beginning matters. Secondly, and we spent a significant amount of time on this last week, that Jesus is king. He's king in heaven. He's king on earth. He's king under the earth. Jesus is king. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, God has highly exalted him. It's him there. Christ Jesus has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, right? So that, okay, here's where it meets the, the street level, if you will, okay? So Christ has been exalted, Right? We see that ultimately in the ascension and the, in him being seated, which we'll look at a little bit more in a moment, at the right hand of the Father. Okay, this has happened. God's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what? What's the, what's the result of that? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is very practical for us, right? The lordship of Jesus Christ is to be acknowledged. And it will be acknowledged by both those in Christ and both those that aren't in Christ. And it's going to be acknowledged in bowing, submission, and with speaking tongues. Right? In heaven, on earth, under the earth. Christ Jesus is king. He's king over all. He's king over everything. This isn't a maybe he will be Lord. This isn't a, well, let's, let's cast a vote and elect him as Lord. He is Lord. He is king. Or consider Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the preacher to the Hebrews. We've looked at this several times, especially over the last several weeks, but right in chapter 1 here, it says, he, speaking of Christ again, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And this is how powerful he is. Get this. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, there's no more need for purification of sins. There's no need for temple sacrifices, none of that stuff. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All right, our Jesus upholds the universe. All right, the word universe meaning all or everything or the whole. All right, he upholds everything by the word of his power. And after shedding his own blood, all right, after becoming the final 
and sufficient sacrifice for our sin, he sat down. He sat down. Where did he sit down? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is seated. We confess that in, in, in the Apostles' Creed, the, the sitting on his throne. Christ sits on the throne of his father, David. Speaking in a, his human lineage. One theologian puts it this way, Christ was invested with a lordship over heaven and earth and solemnly entered into possession of the government committed to him. And that he not only entered into possession once for all, but continues in it until he shall come on judgment day. He's ruling. He's reigning. He has possession of heaven and of earth, of what we see and what we don't see. He's making intercession for us now. Christ is king, and eternally so. And thank God for that. Consider the prophecy, even, just even another passage. You can turn there if you'd like. I think we have it on, this, on the screen. But consider the prophecy of Daniel as well, as he uh, even prophesied about the coming of Christ. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14 here. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Incredible. The, The Father gave the Son dominion and glory and a kingdom in which all peoples, nations, and languages, how inclusive that is, right, should serve him. There's familiar language here that we even saw last week in the Great Commission, right? Christ gave that to us through his disciples, a mission to proclaim the gospel to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And here we have Daniel's prophecy given before the incarnation of Christ, right? Before Christ added humanity to his deity, testifying about how Christ uh, will be worshipped or confessed by all peoples nations, and languages. And, and catch that part in verse 14. Right? His, speaking of, of Christ's, right? speaking of his dominion, and we, we in, in some way have sang this together this morning, his dominion, verse 14, is an everlasting dominion. It's an everlasting dominion. And if that's not clear enough, or if we're still in doubt about it, Daniel goes on, right? The Holy Spirit of God prophesying through him, which shall not pass away. And if that's not clear for us, he goes on and says, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Right? His dominion's an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. I've mentioned Babylon already here, but Daniel, in the midst of Babylon, gets a vision like this one, in which he probably looked around after receiving it, and he starts scratching his head like, what? What? 
Right? But he got a vision in the midst of Babylon, which was filled with all kinds of different people here. It was a very uh, multicultural, if you will, society, and it was a very pluralistic society, one that tolerated absolutely everything except devotion to the one triune God. And Daniel here gets a vision of Christ, the Son of Man, and with that, he sees Christ being served by all peoples, from all nations, from all languages. And Christ has dominion according to this passage. Christ has a kingdom according to this passage, both of, or which, uh, both of which are everlasting. They won't be destroyed. Babylons come and go. They come and go. Right? If where we are in Western society is Babylon, it will fall. It will fall. It's fallen before, and it'll fall again. It'll fall by the one who's allowed it to gain momentum. But God's kingdom knows no end. God's kingdom won't ever be toppled. There's no force in all of creation to topple the Creator's kingdom. The wickedness of man and demons combined cannot overtake the goodness and beauty and stability of God's kingdom and God's rule. The dominion of Christ, the throne of David, is an everlasting rule. Christ, who we see in Romans chapter 5 as the second Adam, and we need not forget this because Genesis chapter 1, again, or Genesis chapter 3 rather, tells us this, that Jesus, the second Adam, he's the slayer of the dragon in the garden. He's the rescuer of his people. This Jesus is king. He's king. Which is why, point three, the nations belong to Christ. Just if we're, we're, we're still questioning that, the nations belong to Christ. Flip over to Psalm 2. I won't read it all to you this morning, but I'll read verses 7 to 12, and I encourage you to read it all. And the psalmist says here, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, and today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12. Kiss the sun or pay homage to the sun, as some translations say, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I've read this passage to you before. But the psalm here, while it has its historical context, chiefly applies to Jesus Christ. It chiefly applies to Jesus. Peter and John, in fact, describe this psalm to Jesus in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And then Paul specifically applies this psalm to Jesus in his sermon in Acts chapter 13. And what should give us hope in this passage 
is the reality that Christ has the nations as his inheritance as the nations rage, which is what verse 1, which I didn't read, is what verse 1 says of Psalm 2. Christ doesn't gain possession of the nations after they've stopped raging. He has them now. He has them now. He, he has them in the midst of the rage. Christ didn't accomplish all that he accomplished in his humanity and then forgot to ask God, the Father, for the nations. That's not what happened here. And again, the raging of nations, it has no bearing whatsoever on Christ possessing them. For those of you with toddlers, there's a lot of rage there sometimes. And sometimes you may wish you didn't possess them, but you do. Right? The rage, the rebellion has no bearing whatsoever on Christ possessing the nations. One day the nations are going to cease raging by when the Lord through his Holy Spirit conquers the raging nations, but Christ is in possession of the nations now. Again, tremendous ramifications for us. Jesus in this psalm is the king that other kings are to pay homage to. Kiss the sun is what the psalm says. Be wise, O kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. With a promise, blessed are they who take refuge in him. Right? That's the battle cry. For the church, right? Take refuge in Christ Jesus, the king that kings pay tribute to, the king that kings will give an accounting for how they rule. That Christ owns the nations. Fourth, we're looking thinking through just biblical optimism, right? We see in the beginning God, significant. We see the kingship of Christ. We see that Christ is the possessor of the nations. And get this, right? Prayer is effective. Prayer is effective, and Jesus taught us how to pray. Prayer is effective, and Jesus taught us how to pray. There's no guesswork here. Matthew chapter 6, again, I'm not going to read the whole prayer here, but verses 9 to 10, Jesus says, pray like this then. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Many of us have this memorized. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why don't we believe that? Shame on us. Shame on us for not believing that. Why do we believe that our good Savior who never lies would give us a prayer that's ineffective? Why would we believe that our Savior who holds the world, the universe, by the word of his power would tell us to pray that God's kingdom and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And then we go around thinking, well, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. Shame on us. Truly. Just as our mission endeavors are a certainty because of the authority of Christ, so are our prayers effective because of the authority of Christ. And every time we pray, we're declaring 
our dependence on the Lord. Every time we pray, we're confessing that He's in control and that we're not in control. And Christ, when He was with those disciples, He taught us to pray, and that prayer related to His will, right? As people that are obsessed about God's will, here it is. Here it is, right? In this prayer, we see God's otherness, His holiness that we just sang about a moment ago, and that we just confessed regarding the, the third commandment there. His holiness is ascribed, right? His glory, his loftiness is acknowledged, followed by Jesus showing us what we should pray. And as Christians, we should see praying for, for the kingdom of Christ to be here, to come as a certainty, right? Ultimately, we know that we'll see the definitive culmination of this when God in Christ returns to make all things new. But we're to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven now. Jesus, again, he wouldn't teach us to pray a fruitless prayer. Right? He's, not, he's not assigning us busy work. Right? We all hate busy work, right? Busy work that you toil and toil and toil and it counts for nothing. This is an effectual prayer given to us by our Savior who took our sin upon himself, who died on the cross, who bodily and eternally raised and ascended to the right hand of God. He said, this is how you pray. This is not only how you should pray, but this is what you should pray for. And I think that this prayer, along with the testimony of Scripture, shows us that our triune God accomplishes his will through the means of prayer. God accomplishes his plan and purpose that his kingdom will come through the faithful prayers of his people. Our praying really is fruitful, right? Our prayer should be kingdom prayer shaped by Christ himself according to his word, right? God's kingdom was inaugurated at the incarnation, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist preached that, right? And it's also his resurrection, right? And it's being fully realized through the faithful prayers of God's people, of God's saints. We should be optimistic about that. We should be motivated. We should leave out of here and be highly motivated to pray as God's people, right? Why would we not? Why would we not pray the way Christ told us and pray for God's will and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? Why would that not be a prayer that we regularly pray And as we're doing that, I think we can be mindful that one of the ways in which that is accomplished, or the way that that is accomplished, point five, is by Jesus making his enemies his footstool. Jesus makes his enemies his footstool. Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, the preacher of the Hebrews, to the Hebrews, and there's other places in the New Testament that do this, uh, Luke 20, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 15, but the preacher of the Hebrews ascribes this psalm to the risen, exalted Christ. Verses 12 to 13 in Hebrews 10, but when Christ had offered for all time, it means there's not going to be any more sacrifices, When he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, again, and we looked at this briefly a moment ago, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
still getting comfortable in the chair. How are Christ's enemies made his footstool? Is, is it through material weapons of warfare? No. No. It, it, it's through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. That's how Christ's enemies are made as footstool. And as Christ's enemies are made as footstool, through that faithful proclamation, we can be sure that given enough time, one day, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. That's point six. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And so we see, we see God making his enemies his footstool. Right? And, and we see this through one of two ways, right? If we're, we're holding in our head the prophecy of Isaiah, which is that the word of God is not going to return void. We know that the word of God does one, one of two things. It either softens people toward repentance and trusting in their good Savior, or it hardens people. But the Lord is accomplishing His plan and His purpose as the gospel goes forth, making His enemies His footstool. And He does that through Christians prayerfully dependent upon the Lord and are faithful to herald the good news of the gospel in, times, in favorable times in society and in unfavorable times in society. But the earth will be full, the knowledge of the Lord. Habakkuk 2.14 here says as much, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Seems like a promise to me, right? Not for the earth may be full, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters, waters cover the sea. I, I, I've heard one pastor say that he thinks we're about knee-deep right now in that. And if this is true, that means that, that we, I, and I share this opinion, that we live in perhaps a pre-Christian society. Not a post-Christian society, but a pre-Christian society. And I think the statistics support this. Let me just, as I was prepping for this and praying through this, let me give you some stats and we can make these available to you if enough of you want copies of this. But think about the first century. Okay, the first century, Christianity started with 12 disciples. If anybody should have been pessimistic, perhaps it was them. Right? Most of them died. Right? That doesn't work well for like a, some sort of, uh, hey, let's set up a booth and recruit more sort of deal. What happens when you sign on to this thing? Uh, We'll talk about it after you sign on. Um, But Christianity, it started with 12 12 disciples. 1800, the year 1800. That was a large jump, I know. But a little less than 2,000 years later, an estimated 204 million Christians are in the world. Started with 12. Okay? Okay. Fast forward a couple of hundred years later to the year 2000. In 200 years, so from 1800 to the year 2000, the world population increased more than six times, but the Christian population increased faster over the same period of time, nine times more. The year 2020, a little more than 200 years later, there's an estimated 2.6 billion Christians in the world. 2.6 
Yet why does pessimism dominate church culture? I don't understand this. Right. According to these statistics, we're probably about knee-deep. There's a, there's a lot of work to be done, and it's going to take enthusiastic Christians who are committed to our Lord's gospel and the proclamation of it for the long term to continue to advance this good deposit that we've been entrusted with. And so the Lord needs to raise up faithful Christians that have the long view in mind, that have the great, 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 great grandchildren in mind. And take this commission seriously. Take our job seriously as believers, resting in the finished work and laboring in the gospel. Take that seriously with a more optimistic, biblically driven, optimistic view. And as we do that, we pray that the Lord hastens the day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A few takeaways for us this morning. These are available in your worship guide. First is this. Our triune God is the creator of the world. He says how it functions. He sustains it. He owns it. And no one can usurp his ownership and rule over it. Takeaway one. Takeaway number two, the Bible is an optimistic book about the power of God, the glory of God, and the unstoppable advancement of His kingdom. Therefore, Christians have every reason to be hopeful and engaged in society for the long term. Three, there's no room for despair in the life of a Christian. If we find ourselves in a perpetual state of dread and despair, we should repent quickly and put our hope in our sovereign God. And we go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for saving us, for sustaining us, God, for giving us a job that one in which we're not on the losing team, God. We're, we're one that um, uh, will lovingly see uh, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation um, be brought to faith in you. And so we rest in that, we trust in that, Lord, and we thank you for allowing us to have spent time together in your word this morning as your church. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.